So uh, when I was in college, I was very kind of quote unquote Christian. I uh, was on the praise team at my church. I was a teacher in the youth group. I was the head of the missions committee. I was on the campus ministry praise team. And I led a small group on my campus ministry. And I was the president of my campus ministry. And so most of my days, almost every day, I would do something like, quote-unquote, Christian. I would go to the bell tower, you know, to pray, or I would, um, like, have a meeting of some sort, some kind of core meeting, or like a servant meeting, or a teacher's meeting, or a praise practice, something like that, almost basically every single day. You know, so these, um, quote-unquote, sacred things, like, ruled my life. That was what my life was all about. And then... You know, at the end of college, after college, I was just kind of living at home with my parents. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, I wasn't a pastor. I hadn't started seminary. I was just kind of, like, working. And um, it was so weird, right? Like, because I didn't have anything to do every single day. I mean, I had work. But other than that, I didn't have anything. And so I had to find things to fill in my day with. And so I would... Like, call up people, I'll be like, hey, what are you doing? You know, do you guys want to go hang out? Like, do you want to play ball tonight? Do you want to, like, do this or do that? And I found myself, for a while, I would look back to when I was in college, and I would think, man, I was so much more Christian back then. You know, because I was doing a lot more Christian stuff. I was doing stuff every day. Never mind that my inner life was a mess, you know, during those times. Never mind that there were all kinds of, like, unconfessed sin in my heart. But I just thought that by virtue of doing a lot of stuff, and I would, like, go on missions every summer. I would read the Bible a lot. You know, for a while, reading the Bible was very, um, like, I don't know if cool is the right term, but we were all really into it, like, my, my kind of group of friends. So we would read the Bible all the time. Like, we would take the Bible to, like, Denny's, and we just, like, read the Bible there. We would take the Bible to the basketball court, and just, like, before we play basketball, we would, like, read the Bible, which is... I don't know if that's good or bad, but it was just what we would do because I had such a hard time. Essentially, with this idea, it's something usually that is confronted when we go into the quote-unquote real world, right? Like when you have a job and you go to your work, and unless you work at a Christian organization, typically there are no Bible studies there. There's no prayer meetings. You know, there there are no morning QTs. And so we have a hard time dealing with what is often referred to as the sacred-secular divide, that there are these sacred things, things we consider sacred, and then there are secular things. I was actually listening to this talk by um, Lecrae. Do you guys know Lecrae? He's a rapper um, who's who's Christian. And um, he was giving a talk at, I think it was Liberty University, and he was telling this story about his friend and how, you know, he grew up in Atlanta and he was... Uh, every time him and his friend would be in the car, they'd be listening to like rap music, right? Like hip hop. And there are all kinds of, there's all kinds of profane language, you know, and there are all kinds of, they talk about these, you know, it's, it's misogynistic and, and racist and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and, you know, they would be bumping it and then they would pass by the church and then his friend would turn it down. Like every time they passed by. And then he would, and then as soon as they would get out of view of the church, he'd turn back up, right? And then Lecrae would look at his friend and he'd be like, what are you doing? Like, dude, you got to respect the Lord, man. <laughs> like, that's, that's what he would say. 
And we've all heard that kind of notion, like if when I was little and somebody would cuss at church, they'd be like, hey, man, this is church. And I'm like, don't do that. Right now, some of us, we take that the wrong way. And they're like, I don't care if it's church. I'll cuss anywhere. Right? Like some of us go to that extreme. But I don't think that's really what God wants. I think what he wants is for us to have one consistent worldview wherever we go and to live that out. You know, the question is kind of how do we do that? How do we bridge this gap between what is considered sacred and secular, particularly in our own lives, when a lot of what we do is, does, is not happening at church? You know, so that's what we're going to be talking about today. So if you guys have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to um, the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29, we'll start in verse 1. And we'll read all the way through verse 14, but we'll take it. um, Well, actually, we'll read all the way through, and then we'll talk about it afterwards. Jeremiah 29, verses um, 1 through um, 14. This is God's word. And it says, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Okay, so we'll, we'll pause right here real quick just to let you guys know what's going on. Essentially, uh, God's people, you know, the people of Israel, the people of Judah in particular here, they have been conquered by the Babylonians, and they've been sent into exile. So they've been basically kicked out of their own land, and now they're living in exile outside of, outside of their promised land. You remember, if you go all the way back in Genesis, the, the big deal was about the promised land. And they got the promised land, and they became a nation, and they had kings, right? And then they fell into all kinds of sin, and so their kingdom was divided. And then eventually they got conquered by other nations. And this is, after all that, um, God is sending a letter to his people who are in exile. And then this is what the letter says. If we read on in verse 4, it says, thus, said the, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So this is what he says. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord." So real quick, just to explain what he's saying, the people of Israel, they were exiled from their own land, right? And then they got sent to Babylon, but they didn't enter the city. So what they did was they stayed on the outside and they made their own communities, 
because they didn't want to go into the city because they were scared that they were going to be corrupted if they went into the city of Babylon. So they said, we're going to keep our identity as God's people and stay separate from the people who are living there. And then God is telling them, essentially, don't do that. Like, go, go live in the city. Right now, let's let's read on verse 10. It says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So at the end here, he promises them. He says, I'm sorry, this is. Oh, it's, it's, it's the wrong heading, but it's the right passage. Um, but he says, I'm going to bring you back after all of this. He says, after all this happens, I'm going to bring you back into the land that is your promised land, and you are going to dwell there. So he says, I do have a plan, and after, you know, after so much time, I'm going to bring you back into your place. Okay, so I think three things that we see in this passage. Uh, the first thing that God says is, Seek to settle, not to separate. Seek to settle, not to separate. See, what the people, of, uh, the people of God, the people of Judah, what they wanted, what they did was they didn't want to kind of intermingle or mix with these non-believers, with these secular people. And so what they did was they said, we have to keep ourselves separate. We're going to live outside of that community. But God says, no, go live and settle in that city. Go, go have families there. Go build houses there. Go contribute there. Go be a part of what's happening there. And he uses, you know, when he talks about, when, when the Bible talks about exiles, and this is an idea that that's, uh, carries on through the New Testament, right? Like in 1 Peter, uh, Christians are called exiles, elect exiles. And what that word means is a resident alien, Right now, so we'll talk about both of those parts. The alien part we'll talk about a little bit later. But what does it mean to be a resident? It means live there, settle there, be a part of the economic and social fabric of the place in which you are. Your work, your neighborhood, the people who are around you, your community. What God explains is, if you look back at the beginning of the passage, if you look back in verse 1, it says, To all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So he's explaining King Nebuchadnezzar was the one who put them in exile. But then if you read a little bit later, it says, To all the exiles whom I sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So that's interesting, right? Because he's saying the reason that you're in exile is because of King Nebuchadnezzar and because of Babylon, because they came in and conquered your nation. But when he's actually talking in the letter, he says, I'm the one who put you in exile. He says, because I have a purpose for you. Because there is something for you to do even in this period of exile. So go settle there. 
This is from uh, Acts 17, 26. You don't have to turn that. I'll just read it for you. But it says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. He says, God has made, he has put people exactly where they're supposed to be so that people could seek him. And I think what's implied is both those people who are there and the people who those people are connected to. Do you believe that God has a purpose for you right now? Not like something that's going to come, not something that's going to happen, not something that you're working towards, but right now. Now, we're not usually looking, I think in our culture, we're not usually looking to... um, kind of settle down. Especially for Christians, we're either looking to move up or move on, or we are looking to separate. This is something that Christians often seek for various reasons. I think some people are scared. They don't want to be too engaged in the world or else it could lead them into sin. I think for other Christians, though, I think for the majority of Christians, though, and even though some people say that, it's more because it's just comfortable Um to be with other Christians. In fact, it's the dream. I've like heard this as a dream, not in so many words, but basically implied that some Christians want their community to be so self-contained, right? Like I've, I've heard people say things like this, right? Like I wish we had our own thing, our own league, you know, like our own place where like a bunch of Christian, like I, you know, my friends used to say this, like, oh yeah, I want to go somewhere and I want to just live in like with all my friends, like right nearby me together. We just all live right next to each other. We'll be all of you in like walking distance. Everyone's Christian, obviously. And then we would have like all this kind of accountability and we could share with each other and like being Christian would be easier. You know, because we can meet all the time. Like when people read Acts 2 or Acts 4 and it talks about how they were meeting in the temple courts every day, people look at that and they go like, oh, yeah, like going to church every single day and praying together and just like worshiping together and reading the Bible. Like that would be great. A community so self-contained, you never have to go outside of it. I've heard people say even other things like we should start like a Christian, you know, chain of businesses or we should start a Christian like this or that. So that we wouldn't have to interact with a lot of these other people. I don't think we realize what we're saying when we're saying that. But basically we're saying we wish we were just separate. Like we, we wish we were essentially in a monastic community. Right? Like a bunch of monks. Except, you know, you can like drink and you can like, you know, dance and party. And you can have, I don't know, karaoke. They probably won't do that at... At, at monasteries, and you can, like, I don't know, you can have Netflix and video games or something. You know, so basically, like, monks, except, so you're mostly Christian, but then just with some other maybe secular things also there included. And a lot of Christians think, oh, that would be really cool. Like, I could probably be a better Christian. I could probably not sin as much. I mean, of course, that's, that's I think many of us... <laughs> would not want that. Well, some of us would find it appalling because we don't want that much accountability <laughs> to start with. But others of us probably see that that's not really the point of Christianity. 
right? That, that was never God's point for his people, to be so separated that you wouldn't even be tempted to be tempted to sin. That's not what he has for us. He has for us to be connected to our schools, connected to our neighbors, connected to our workplaces, connected to our cities, to know what's going on in their lives, to know their names, to have them over, you know, for us to love and serve the people where we are right now instead of, and and this is what Israel was hoping for, right? They knew they would eventually go back to their land. So they said, I'm just going to wait for that. I, I, so God, I have nothing to do for the next 70 years. You know, I'm just going to chill here outside. I'm going to wait until God gives me the blessing. And, you know, when we go back, we go back. And that's what God is saying is that's, that's not what I have for you to just wait and hope for a better situation. There's something for you right now today. Seek to live and settle where you are, not to separate. Here's the sec- second thing we see. It's, it's related, but he says, uh, and I'm going to put it in kind of more New Testament terms, but he says, seek to be an ambassador. Seek to be an ambassador, not a citizen. Now that word exile, like I said, it's resident alien. So there's a part of it that's like, hey, you live there and you be a part of it. But then there's another part of it that you're an alien, like you don't really belong there though. And, um, you know, if you look in the New Testament in, um, Corinthians, this is 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are Christ's ambassadors. I'm sorry. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So he says, and you know, a lot of people know verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. But that is connected directly to this idea of, so what is the purpose of you being a new creation? It is to be an ambassador. So uh, what an ambassador is, is basically, like an ambassador is an interesting job, right? It is that you live in country A, but you represent country B. Right? So you live in one country, but that's not your home country. Right? You live in one country, but you are a representative of another country. So you're fluent in the language of that country that you live in. You are fluent in the culture. You know what's going on. And also you just kind of like and appreciate it, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't be an ambassador to that country. But that's not your country. Like an ambassador never forgets that he or she is actually looking out for the interests of his or her own country, not the country that they're living in. That's what we are called to be, ambassadors for Christ. You never forget that you represent the values and interests of a different country. So we are to live here and to settle here and to work here and to serve here and to know people here and to be connected in the communities here, but we serve the interests of Christ. This is Philippians 3. It says, but our citizenship is in heaven 
And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So the thing is, being in transition, which is where the Israelites were. They were in transition. They were exiled from their own land. They were waiting for the deliverance of God so that they could go back to their own land. That's a hard place to be. And a lot of times when we're in that state, we end up doing nothing. Right? Like, do you guys remember, um, like, senioritis? You guys remember when you're in high school and you're a senior in high school and graduation is coming up? I mean, senioritis is so serious that we give it the, the nomenclature of a disease, right? Like, it has to be, it's an itis. Like, that's how bad it is. Because what happens? You end up not caring about anything, right? Like you already know what college you're going to. You already know like what's going to happen or, or what you're going to do after you graduate. If you're just going to go straight into work or you're going to do this or that. Like, you already know, right? So second semester, senior year, you just ditch school all the time, right? You're just having fun. You don't care. You're not thinking about stuff. You're not thinking about your education. You're not trying to learn something, right? Because you know those grades, they don't matter. Just don't get an F, right? Like that's it. And you'll be fine. Or when you know you're going to leave your job, you put in your two weeks. Or when you know you're about to move. Or when you're about to get married. Or when you're pregnant. Or when you're, you know, looking for a church. Like these tend to be the phases of our lives when we're like, uh, I don't know. Like what's the point? You know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm leaving in like a couple weeks, this job. I don't need to know these guys. <laughs> like, I, like I, don't need to, I don't need to be thinking about what's happening in their lives. The thing is, what the Bible tells us is that our whole lives will be lived in transition. That's, that's all of our lives. That's all it is. It's moving from one thing to another to another because we're not ever going to find a permanent residence here. Your entire life, from the moment you're born to the time that you die, is one big transition. It's one great metamorphic process. There is no arrival. I mean, there is certainly growth. There are milestones. There are things that we see and that we experience, and we get like a taste of this and a taste of that. But there isn't that sense that, you know, there's not going to be a moment when you will find such a perfect balance of family or work or community or church when that gap between what is and what should be is completely closed. That will never happen. Not on this side of eternity. And that's, it's not supposed to happen. Right? Instead, the purpose that God lives us, it, it, it transcends where we live, where we work. You know, us, like if we are ever completely content and satisfied in this life, that's not a sign that we've achieved some kind of perfect balance. It is more likely it's because we have so silenced the outside world. It's because we've insulated ourselves in a cocoon so strong that you, don't, you no longer know or care what's going on outside of it. All that matters to me is just what's inside here. My close friends or my family or my interests, like these things are the only things that matter. So all the things outside, I'm just not going to listen to it. I'm not going to let it bother me anymore. That's not a good place to be. As long as we're here, 
we should feel some sense of, yeah, like some things are still not as they should be. Those are the things we live for. Those are the, the oppressed that we fight for, the injustices we want to see made right. Knowing it's, we're not going to achieve that perfection here, but we can always continue to fight for it until we find our true home, right? Like as ambassadors of this place, what we can tell people is not, ju- like not only to fight for them and to help them and to love them and to serve them, but also to tell them, hey, this isn't actually home. This isn't the only place that we should be living for. You're always going to have a sense of like, yeah, not everything is perfect. But there is a true home. There is a better place. There is somewhere where there will be no more sickness, right? Like no more hurt or shame or pain. And there we'll live forever. Our bodies won't even break down. We'll have perfected bodies and everything will be great. And guess what? I can introduce you to the king of that place. His name's Jesus. That's what God has given us, the privilege of participating in that work. So how do we do that? Here's here's the last point. Uh, Seek the welfare of those around you, even your enemies. Seek the welfare of those around you, even your enemies. And when God tells his people, he says, seek the welfare of the city. And he said... He says, um, verse 7, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now some people read that and they think, well, that's kind of just, that's just like practical, right? If you seek the welfare of the place where you live, then your life will also be better. But, uh, and that's true, of course, but that's not really what God is talking about. You know, the word welfare it's really the word shalom, right? So the peace, the prosperity, the kind of total wholeness. He's saying that's what we should be seeking. Now, do you know what the Israelites would be thinking? They'd be like, these are the guys who conquered us. They've like murdered our people. They have broken our homes. They've destroyed our city. They've displaced us from the place where we lived. These are our enemies, How could God say for us to seek, not only to seek their welfare, but to pray for them? Now, of course, if you're a Christian, it shouldn't be that surprising. This is the closest thing in the Old Testament that you'll find to uh, Matthew 5.44. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So he says, settle and love and serve and care for the people there sacrificially, even the people that oppose you, even the people that could hurt you if you do. Like, you have to put yourself out there and be vulnerable. So let me give you just a couple applications, okay, like how to do that. First one is simple, but I think it's something we don't think about a lot. Uh, Be excellent. Be excellent in service to Christ. And when I say be excellent, you know, when I say be excellent in service to Christ, I don't mean like be excellent in your service at church. I mean, be excellent in whatever you do, in whatever way that you serve the community, which for many of us, that's our job, right? If you, wherever you work in whatever field you work in, be excellent at it because you provide some service 
to the the welfare of the community, the the peace and the prosperity and the growth and you know everything of the community. But don't do it because it will make you look good, or don't do it just to get a raise, or don't do it just to to advance in your job. Do it in service to Christ, because because that's your calling. That's what God wants you to do. He wants you to be excellent in that, to serve people excellently. Now, if, if you do serve in in, ch- in the church, you should be excellent at that too. Not in service to the people or the program, you know, not in service to the, the program of the church or, and not even just in service to the people, but in service to God because that is your calling. And here's the second thing I'd say is um, pray for the welfare of your enemies. Now, I don't know if you have literal enemies. If you do, then you should, like, ask your close friends why you have enemies because that's kind of weird. Um, so we don't really have enemies, right, I think, but there are certainly people, I'm sure, in your life that are not kind of like, that, that you don't love, right, that you don't, at least that you don't want to love. There are people that you interact with, maybe at work, maybe at school, you know, maybe people that you see on a semi-regular basis that aren't kind of the nicest people to you. Maybe you might find them annoying. Maybe you might find they're, they're bothersome. And what I would say is pray for that person's or those, those people's welfare, like their peace, their prosperity, their growth. Pray that they would know Jesus if they're not believers. Pray for that. I know sometimes we don't want to because we would rather just not like them. You know, we would rather dislike them and then talk about them probably badly behind their back and spread things about them. And we would rather – this is – Typically how we think of our enemies, and, you know, I'm using that term loosely, but we don't really want our enemies to do well. We want to conquer them, right? Like we want to beat them. We want to do better than them. But the call here is help them. So not only, I'm saying praying as a starting point, but if you sincerely pray for them, God will give you a heart to want to help them. Like if they're bad at their job and that's what you hate about them, then you will help them get better at their job because you actually care for them. You know, if they have no friends and that's, what you, that's how you see because they're kind of weird and they're like alone all the time, then you, God will give you compassion to befriend them. To actually say, hey, do you want to grab dinner? Do you want to grab a drink sometime? Like not for any agenda Not so you can blindside them and be like, my church is doing this special event, you know, come by. No, just just to like be friends with them, just to care for them, to seek their welfare. Now, that may seem like a high and difficult calling, but I mean, if it sounds familiar, it should because that's, that's what Christ did. That's how he loved us. Jesus, like think about Jesus's life. He... He didn't just like pass through the world, right? Like he moved into the world from heaven. He, he settled in the world in Nazareth, which was certainly not his home. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm certain was a lot less glamorous than whatever, you know, God's home is in heaven. We don't really have pictures. We only have these vague descriptions. But I don't think Nazareth, you know, a couple thousand years ago, 
was the, 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 the greatest place for Jesus. He had friends there. He had loved ones. He blessed those around him. And think about this. For 30 years, he just lived there. Right? He, was just, he was like a carpenter. Well, not for 30 years because he was a kid for some of that time. But, you know, when he grew up, he was just like, a, like his father. He was a carpenter. He just served that community. He, just, he was known in that community. People knew him. They were just like, oh, yeah, that's Jesus. And so that's Mary and Joe's kid, right? He was just a part of that. He, he incarnated there, that's, we call it the incarnation. That's what he did. He went there, and he lived there, and he moved in, and he knew people, and he loved them, and he served them, and he sought the physical and emotional and spiritual flourishing of everyone he encountered, even his enemies, even those who plotted to kill him, even the ones who hated him, who didn't give him a fair trial, who traded his life for that of a murderer, and who excruciatingly tortured and murdered him. And as he was inching toward his death, hanging on a cross that represented the sins of other people, not his own, he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus has done for his people, his community, even his enemies. That's what he has done for us, for you, and for me, and what he offers us to step into and empowers us to do for others. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much that what you have for us, God, the joy and the life and the power that you have for us is not limited to, you know, pews or a building or only a certain time every day, God, that you desire the whole of our lives to be redeemed in you, that you have a calling and a purpose for each of us right now, wherever we are. Jesus, would you remind us of the incredible love that you've demonstrated for us that we might be able to walk in your steps, God, that we might be able to be some dim reflection of you so that people might in our love and service be able somehow to find you God that is our prayer that is our hope and we pray God that that would be you know what we continue to persist in until uh, we see you on the final day and we can just rejoice forever Uh, we thank you so much God and we love you in Jesus we pray